Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Wrapping up Mark today. I don't know when we started. It was a while ago. My birthday. <laughs> but probably my birthday from last year. 2021, I would think. Way back when I was 47. Now, no, 46. Now I'm 47. That's how long it's been. I don't even remember how old I am. So we're, we're going to wrap it up today. The last few weeks have been heavy. We've looked at Jesus' arrest. We've looked at his um, trial, both of them. We've looked at his crucifixion and his death. Uh, there's a tendency for some of us to kind of skip over that and jump straight to Easter Sunday. We know the rest of the story. I think it's helpful not to dwell on the, the, the pain, not to dwell on the betrayals, the denials, the desertion for their own sake, but to recognize that this is an expression of love. Like we say that all the time, God loves us, but sometimes there's no content behind the word. And, and that, that's the content. That's a, that's a portion of it. This is how we, God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us. In the last three weeks, we've unpacked what that one word, die, all that's entailed there. A father who loves us enough to send his son to, to die, to, to be betrayed, to be denied, to be de- abandoned, to be mocked, to be flogged, to be wrongfully accused and convicted, and then to be tortured and to be executed. He, that's how much the father loves us. And the son loves us enough that he willingly embraces that path. And so again, it, that, that simple phrase, God loves us, again, sometimes we just, we lose the, is that on me? Perfect. We lose, what am I doing wrong? There we go. Just, I can hold this. Right, right, this is the spot. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's still going. All right, here we go. Um, sorry about that. So that that I that the content of God's love. I think that those last three weeks and. Again, we don't need to dwell on the, the pain for its own sake, but to recognize this is a demonstration of how much God loves us. Today, we're going to look at the resurrection. We talked about this back on Easter. We used the same passage. You don't remember it seven months ago. Uh, we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle. One of the things about Mark's story is it's, it's anticlimactic. His resurrection story doesn't sound like either Matthew or Luke or John. We'll talk about that a little bit. But as we're reading, I want you to do your best to put yourself in the story. So we're going to start in verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. So they're watching Jesus' crucifixion from a distance. Remember, all the guys have deserted. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed Jesus and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up, uh, excuse me, who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day. That's the day before the Sabbath, so that's Friday. 
So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When Pilate learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some, brought, excuse me, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut, him out, cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on, a, on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus and Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then your Bible may have a line and some other verses in italics. We'll talk about that in a second. It's an interesting way for a gospel to end on this kind of note of fear, and we would even maybe say disobedience. The angel said, do this, and Mark says they, they didn't do that. They didn't go tell anyone. So I, I want to look at this passage through the lens of three words, devotion, courage, and fear. But before we do that, just make sure we're all on the same page. Jesus died very quickly. We said normally it's two to four days on the cross. Jesus dies in six hours. So when Joseph comes uh, to ask Pilate for the body, Pilate's surprised. People don't die that quickly. And so he wants confirmation. The centurion confirms, yes, Jesus is in fact dead. So Pilate gives Joseph the body. That's unusual. So a victim of crucifixion would normally not be buried. They'd either be left on the cross until they decayed or they'd be thrown outside kind of like trash to be scavenged by dogs. So the idea of being buried, that, that is unusual. Uh, this is, Jesus dies at three. The Sabbath starts at sundown. So you've just got a few hours, two, three hours, something like that for Joseph to get the body and get it in his tomb. And, and we've got some women who are watching all of this from, from a distance. And that, that's important. They're eyewitnesses to some really important things. Mary, some people call her the other Mary, the, the mother of James and and Joseph, and then Salome, they're, they're part of a larger group of women who've been disciples of Jesus for months, if not years. They've been following him. We don't hear much about them at all in Mark, but there is a group. Of, if, if we could take a step back and see Jesus's larger following, it's not just these 12 guys. There's a larger group, and there's women who are part of that, and these, these three are named, and they're eyewitnesses of some really important things. They can, they can say, yep, I, I saw him die. I was watching, I was, it was a distance, but I was watching him. He died. I, I saw that he was buried and I know where he was buried. I saw Joseph put him in his tomb. And I, I also, I was there. I, I know the tomb was empty. There, there are eyewitnesses to some really important facts. Who is Joseph? He's uh, from, if we tie together what we know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's um, a member of the Sanhedrin. Remember, that's the group that convicted Jesus of blasphemy. He didn't vote to convict he was a follower of Jesus, but John says he was a secret 
disciple because he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. He was well-known, he was upstanding, and he was wealthy. Those are some things that we know about him. Those are the main characters in our little section. Joseph, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, and then these three women who we're going to treat as a group because Mark does, uh, who are eyewitnesses to death, eyewitnesses to burial, eyewitnesses to empty tomb. Jews buried in caves more so than in the ground. So you would, uh, you would have a cave for your family. That would be the, the tomb, a family grave. Uh, when someone died, you would take their body and put it in that tomb, and then you'd bring spices to put on that body, not, not to embalm, but to cut the smell of decomposition. You'd roll a, a stone in front of the entrance of the cave to keep scavengers out, maybe grave robbers, definitely animals. Then you'd come back a year later, you'd open the tomb up, you'd gather the bones, put them in a box, and put that box like in a, in a cubby, and then the, the tomb is ready for the next person in your family to die, and you would repeat that process. That's the normal way that a, a Jewish person would be buried, and Joseph and these women are really functioning in that sense as Jesus' family. They're doing for him what uh, a family would, would normally do, but again, unusual for anyone who's crucified to be buried, particularly in this kind of way, with this kind of care. So that's what's going on, and those are the people who are involved. On the, the Easter Sunday itself, when the women get there, they get there as soon as the sun comes up. They know wh where the tomb is. They didn't go to the wrong one. They saw Joseph put Jesus' body in his family tomb. So they go back, and they're wondering, how's this rock going to get moved? We're not strong enough to do it, but it's, it's not there when they get there on Easter Sunday. And they walk into the tomb, and there's an angel it's just, it's a guy dressed in, you know, he's, he's wearing white clothes. He's, he's an angel, and he says, here's what happened. Jesus is risen. That's who you're looking for. He's not here. And here's what I want you to do. He's going to meet the disciples. He's going to meet the guys in Galilee, and you need to tell them that. Just simple. Here's what happened, and here's what you need to do in response to that. But they're terrified, bewildered, alarmed. They're afraid, and they leave, and they don't say anything to anybody according to Mark. Now, we know from Matthew and Luke and John that they do. This fear is temporary, but Mark doesn't tell us that. Again, it's such an interesting, odd, weird way to end a gospel. Just a little bit of a side note. I don't want to get lost in the weeds of this, but some of your, many of your Bibles have a line, and then everything else, there's, there's 11 more verses, and they're in italics, and the heading says most of the old, earliest manuscripts don't contain these verses, verses 9 to 20. They're in your Bible, but they're in italics. It's like, well, then why are they there? Um, the, again, not, not to get lost in the weeds, but maybe just a little bit to help. So we don't have the original of any New Testament documents. You, you know that. We don't have Mark's original. We don't have 1 Corinthians' original. We don't have Hebrews' original. We don't have that. What we have are tons and tons and tons, thousands of copies that are really, really, really old. So there's hardly any disagreement about what the original said because we have so many copies, and they agree so consistently. Something like 99.5% of the New Testament text, there's no question at all about what it says. But one place where there is some controversy is the end of Mark. The two oldest cop manuscripts that we have don't have 9 to 20, but all of the other old, most of the other old ones do. Some of the church fathers talk about it, others don't. So there's this conflicting evidence. Certainly ending where it ends seems it's not very satisfying the way Mark ends. And so there's this thought that says there's got to be more. 
Either he wrote more and we lost it, or he wrote more and it's 9 to 20. And so there's, there's kind of a, a debate. Most people now would say 9 to 20, Mark didn't write that. That's not what he wrote. It got added on really, really early, but it's, it's an add-on. Somebody else with the best of intentions was like, I don't like the way this ends. And so they looked at Matthew, and they looked at Luke, and they looked at John, and they looked at Acts, and they pulled those things together and said, that, that's the ending. And if you read 9 to 20, it's fine. It's not, you're not, you know, nothing bad's going to happen to you. You read 9 through 20, that's what it sounds like. It just sounds like a recap of what happens in all of those books at the end after Jesus comes back. It's just a, a quick summary. And so I, I, we're not out anything one way or the other. I would, we're not going to talk about it, and I don't, I don't teach through that. And the, the main, I'm not a textual scholar for sure, archaeologists are still digging in the dirt, so they find, they find the original and this is there, then I'll adjust my theology. But for right now, I would say we don't gain anything from it. And there's one verse in there that's really difficult and doesn't sound like the New Testament to me. And it's verse 18 when whoever wrote it is talking about here's, here's, here are the signs that are going to accompany those people who believe in Jesus. And he says they'll pick up snakes and they'll drink deadly poison and they won't get hurt. So that's not us. We, and that, that doesn't sound like the New Testament to me. Everything else in 9 to 20, you're like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> There's one place in the Bible where Paul gets bit by a venomous snake and he doesn't die, but he doesn't pick it up. He's reaching for a piece of firewood and it bites him. There's a difference between testing and trusting it sounds more like testing, picking up a poison. We're not, we're, not, we're not passing around a box of rattlesnakes, and everyone who believes picks it up. And if you have enough faith it doesn't bite you, or if it does, then you don't go to the hospital. We're not passing around a mason jar of strychnine. There are churches that do that. We're not one of them. So for me, again, that, that, that's the thing that makes me hesitant about those last few verses. It's that part that just doesn't, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me relative to everything else I know. But if you do, that's fine. And I, there, you're not, we're not out anything unless we got to figure out what it looks like to obey that snakes and poison verse. We would need to do that. But outside of that, everything else we've already got. So we're going to cut at verse 8 with that unsatisfying, they flee and they don't say anything. Courage, fear, devotion. Let's look at devotion foundationally. It's another word for love. I think it's maybe a bit more descriptive. The women in Joseph, they're devoted to Jesus, and they show that through the care they take for his corpse. They both, Joseph with wrapping, he goes, you could say that's the lowest moment. Jesus dead hanging on a cross. That, that could be the lowest moment. In terms of if you're someone who's put any level of faith and trust in Jesus, it, it probably doesn't get worse than that. Pulling him down off a cross, taking his dead body, wrapping it in linen, putting it in your family tomb. Then the, the, the women, as soon as they're able to, there's just not enough time. From three in the afternoon on Friday until the sun goes down, that's the beginning of the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work. There's just not enough time for them to anoint the body. So as soon as they can, as soon as the sun comes up on Sunday, the Sabbath is over and they can see, they get these spices and they go to anoint his body. They're giving Jesus a proper or a dignified, a respectful burial. They're showing care. 
they're showing love. They're showing devotion to him in those moments. And again, it's, this is impossible for us to relate to because we only know Jesus as crucified and resurrected. Those are the first things you learn about him. So we, we can't fathom a Jesus who doesn't die and is not resurrected. They can't fathom one who does. Deuteronomy 22, 23, one of those says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And by the time of, by Jesus's day, that verse was applied to crucifixion victims. So if you were crucified, you were considered cursed. So put yourself in the position of Mary, the other Mary and Salome. Put yourself in the position of the minus Judas, the 11 other male disciples that we know. You've invested in this man. You've given time. These women have given money, we're told in Luke. They support the Jesus and his disciples in their ministry. You've invested relationally in him. You believe this is the Messiah, maybe even the Son of God, but definitely the Messiah, the one who's sent by God to make everything right. That's what you believe. And then when he's arrested and when he's convicted and then when he's crucified, well, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. How can the Messiah be cursed? Messiah, by definition, the anointed one, the chosen one. How is the chosen one the cursed one? Again, for us, we've got 2,000 years of history to be able to pull those things together and say, yes, he was cursed because he was chosen. That was part of his chosenness. That's why the sky, the sky turned black from noon until three in the afternoon. Because he was cursed. Because he did experience the judgment that was due us all. But in that moment, that, there's, that's nowhere on anybody's radar screen. None. Nobody's thinking that. Internally, they're shredded because this one who they've seen as the Messiah, that they've invested heart, energy, money, time into has now been crucified, shown to be rejected, cursed by God. And in the midst of that, Joseph, Mary, Mary, Salome express care and devotion and love. It's amazing to me. When most people have already left, they're still there. They may seem like small acts, but they're acts concrete expressions of devotion, of care, and of love. Courage, we see that with Joseph. Mark says he boldly goes to Pilate. Doesn't necessarily seem like a big deal to us. Boldly, courageously, uh, to do something without fear or worry about resistance or opposition. What's the big deal? So Jesus has been crucified as a traitor. That's the Jews convicted of, of blasphemy, Pilate and the Romans convicted him of treason. He's a traitor. He said he was a king, and there's only one king in that Caesar. Joseph is a secret disciple, so he's, he's wrestled with fear. John says he's afraid of the Jewish leaders. And now, at the, the lowest, maybe not, it seems like the lowest moment to me, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, I don't think it gets worse than pulling his body off the cross. And that lowest moment, he goes to Pilate and, and publicly identifies himself with this one who's a traitor. That takes courage. He was unwilling to get on the radar screen of the Jews as someone who was sympathetic to Jesus. He's willing to get now to, 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 to raise his hand in front of Pilate, to make himself known to Pilate and say, yeah, I'm, 
I at least care enough about this guy to make sure he gets a proper burial. That's dangerous to do with someone who's just been labeled a traitor. Pilate can crucify anybody he wants to. That's a dangerous thing to do to say, yeah, I'm, I'm with him who you just said was a traitor who committed treason. There's, there's a boldness there in Joseph. The fear we see in Mary, the other Mary, and Salome. This is not a man-woman thing. Don't hear that. It's just the way it breaks down. There's, there's fear, and Mark makes it really plain. They are afraid. Like we, we can see it, and we can say that makes a ton of sense. They went to go find a dead body. That's why they brought the spices. They were expecting a corpse that they could uh, anoint. They certainly were not expecting an empty tomb. Again, that's not Jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead. Nobody got it. Nobody did. So this is not, not demeaning Mary and Mary and Salome at all. But they're scared. They're shocked. But they're beyond shocked. They're afraid. That's the word. And the words that are used to describe them. Trembling bewildered, afraid, they fled. That's the same word that's used to the disciples in the garden when they all abandoned Jesus. At this moment in verse 8, the way Mark ends, the women are being driven by fear. And again, this isn't a men are courageous and women wilt. That's not what this is at all. The women, they were the only, they were the only ones that had stuck out through the death and, and the burial. They were, they were there. It's just in this moment we see them giving in to fear. Just like in the garden, we see the disciples giving into fear in that moment for them. So I was thinking about for us, love, courage, and fear. If we can see love as a foundation, if you're following Jesus, you love him to some degree. You're devoted to him to, to some degree. You're committed to him in some degree. None of us perfectly and fully, but all of us hopefully in, in the process and that, that's, a, that's the foundation for us. And then on that foundation, I think we have opportunities all the time to choose to be courageous or to choose to be fearful. I'm still kind of thinking this through so y'all can just work it out with me. Take what's helpful and chew on it, ditch what's not. So again, to me to see this foundation of love and as people who are following Jesus we we have expressed some level of commitment to him remember when we're talking about love we're not talking about hollywood love is not something that happens to us it's not a, we're not a victim of you know fate and forces and circumstances those things are fine that's more infatuation than love what we're talking about is a commitment a, a decision an intention to prioritize Jesus above all things. That, that's what we're talking about with love. And we, when we have that, but again, none of us have that perfectly. It's, it's an area where we want to grow. I don't know if you, part of your prayer time, I don't know if you ask God to help you love him more. That maybe feels weird. I, I think for most of us, we think, well, I just should, right? I should just love him more. Like that's on, that's on me. That's my responsibility. I shouldn't be asking him to help me love him. That feels weird. I should just, I should just do that. I, I wouldn't. I would encourage you to ask him to help you to love him. That's a regular, it's changed things for me. It really has in my own relationship with him to recognize. I don't have to have this spontaneous generation of feelings towards him. I, I don't have to somehow try to will up some something to say, 
God, I, I, I love you and I want to love you more. So would you help me to do that? Recognizing I love you because you first love me. So that's the first step for me is I, I want to grasp your love for me. We talk about this all the time, Ephesians 3. Give us power to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is your love for me, for us in Jesus. To know this love that surpasses knowledge, to be filled to the measure of the fullness of your love for us. Paul says, pray that God would help you know that. So, all right, help me know that. I'm not going to get that on my own. And then out of that, my love for you. Would you strengthen my love for you? Would you mature? Would you deepen my love for you? I hope that's a part of your regular Prayer time, that's foundation. 1 John 4, 18, that's a verse many of you know. Perfect love casts out fear. That context for that is particularly regarding final judgment. God's love for us makes us not dread standing before him at final judgment. He's going to forgive us because he said so. So we can trust that. But we tend to apply that verse beyond just final judgment. And I think that's okay as as the as our our apprehension, comprehension, appreciation, understanding, experience of God's love for us grows in our heart, it pushes out the fear that's in our heart. But I think reality for all of us is none of us are there yet. None of of our hearts are fully indwelled with the love of God. They're not. Or God's love for us, that's a better way of saying it. None of our hearts have been completely filled with God's love for us. That's an area we just talked about. We want to grow. And that's a long term. That's a from now until we die kind of thing. We don't, none of us are going to arrive this side of our death or Jesus' resurrection. So there's going to be places in our hearts where we're afraid. And so, again, I I don't want us to see courage and fear as these static states. I'm either a courageous person or a fearful person. What I want us to recognize is because God's love does not perfectly dwell in our hearts, we're constantly, maybe that's too frequently, we'll say that, we're frequently confronted with opportunities to either choose to be courageous or to choose to be fearful. We have this foundation of love that's there and hopefully becoming stronger and hopefully becoming more stable and hopefully becoming deeper and hopefully maturing But even as that work is happening, you're living your life. You're not just sitting in your chair. You're living your life. And so as you live your life, frequently, daily maybe is too strong. I don't know. But at least frequently, you and me, we're going to have the opportunity to choose courage or to choose fear, to live courageously or fearfully. And remember, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness, the commitment, the intention to be faithful, to obey, to do the right thing, even when we're experiencing fear. Don't think about courage emotionally. It's not helpful. Think about courage, again, as an intention of your will. I'm going to be faithful, even though I'm shaking in my boots. I'm going to do the right thing, even though I'm afraid of how it's going to, the consequences. I'm going to be obedient, even though my knees are knocking. That's courage. It's not not feeling fear. It's being true in the face of those feelings. And again, we want to see that fear shriveling. We want to see it cast out of us. And as we're praying, God, help me to know 
the fullness of your love, that love will begin to push the fear out of our hearts. But none of us are there now, and none of us, I don't think, I'm not being pessimistic, I think it's just realistic. I don't think we're going to get there before we die, where God's love dwells in us perfectly. I think there's always going to be those places in us where we're prone to acting fearfully. We, we're not better. I don't think it's helpful to think that way. We're not better than Mary and Mary and Salome. I'm not better than Peter. We're not better than the 10 guys that abandoned. I don't think that the, maybe we could say those things ultimately, the, the, their, their shortcomings were around, based in a lack of love. And maybe on some level they are, they didn't love enough to be faithful in that moment. I think it's more helpful to see those things as a lack of courage. In that moment, when Jesus is arrested, the 10 abandon. Their courage fails them. Peter follows. And then when he's confronted by this nobody, a servant girl, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? No, no, no. Each no getting progressively more emphatic. The distance he's putting between himself and Jesus growing more and more with each denial. We could say, well, that's a lack of love. I'm wondering if it's more helpful for us to see it as a lack of courage. What happens when the rooster crows twice? Peter breaks down. He loves Jesus, but in the moment he wilts. That feels like us. Not all the time, but some of the time. These women, they're there. They're watching from a distance. They they haven't, even when they're going to 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 the tomb, this, it's, I don't know what you call it. When they're like, well, how are we going to take care of it? They can't move that stone. What do they think they're going to do? But they're going. This is what we need to do. This is how we express care, devotion, compassion. He needs to be buried with dignity. And then when they get in the tomb, everything's turned upside down for them. Their fear is temporary. We know that from Matthew and Luke and John. What Mark tells us, he, but he said, it's real. It's real. And that feels like us to me. Again, I, I think on one level we want to say, yes, let's keep working on the foundation. Always. Long obedience in the same direction. Let's keep working on asking God, help me to know your great love for me and help me to grow in my love for you. We're always praying that. That's, that's, that's a regular for us. And recognizing as that work is happening, I still have to make decisions today. I'm still going to be confronted with the decision today. Well, do do you know him or not? Didn't I see you with him? I'm in an empty tomb. I know a tomb's empty, but I haven't seen a resurrected Jesus. Well, am I going to believe or not? He gives us enough to believe, but not so much that we have to. That's where we live, I think. So what does it look like for us with, with just enough but not too much? Not so much, I should say. To live in this reality that we love, our love is not perfect, and so there is still fear in most of our hearts, in places. It's not necessarily pervasive in every area. For some of us, we're fearful when we think about the people we love the most. We're fearful about their future. For some of us, we're fearful about our own future. 
We can be fearful about our finances. We can be fearful about our health. We can be fearful about the state of our community or country or nation or world. We can be fearful. Any number of, I I don't know what it is for you. Think about what Jesus said to the 11 in the garden. Watch, be alert, be aware, know what time it is. It's helpful for us to know ourselves. Where are the areas where in that moment where it's going to be difficult for me to be courageous? It's going to be difficult for me in that moment to choose faithfulness, obedience, the right thing. I know I'm going to experience fear in that moment, and sometimes it, can, it wins. Good news for us. We come up short. There's always forgiveness. There's always restoration. Tell the guys I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Easy to skip that sentence. Tell the guys who abandoned me. Where they can meet me again. And make sure you tell Peter. He's the only one singled out. Not because he's more important than anybody else. He's the only one that denied so even when we come up short, there's grace there. Like We're going to. There's grace. There's redemption. There's restoration. But we'd rather not come up short. We're going to, but let's minimize. What does it look like for you, for me, to say, okay, I'm going to watch? We talked about this a few weeks ago. I want to be aware of the areas where, not just where I'm tempted, but the areas where I'm weak where I'm frail, where I'm prone to giving in to fear. I want to know what those are. Sometimes we're caught off guard and we're unprepared. The tomb's empty. I wasn't ready for an empty tomb. Sometimes that happens. Oftentimes, we're not necessarily caught off guard. We just, we haven't, we're deliberately, that's not true. We're, un, we're, we're unprepared because we did not deliberately prepare. We want to watch and we want to pray. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. I got to be courage, courageous. You know, this isn't hero of the movie who just from someplace deep within wells up this inner sense of strength. Nope. Watch and pray. Live dependently. Fully, completely on him. Ask him for help. God, I know this Thanksgiving holiday, these are the areas where I'm tempted and where I'm weak. I need you to help me. I want to be courageous in those moments. I certainly want my foundation to get stronger and more stable. I want to know your love for me and I want to love you more, 100%. And as you're doing that, in the moment of Question, trial, test, temptation, whatever you want to call it. I want to be faithful. I want to do what's right. I want to obey. So in that moment, I pray for grace to be courageous, knowing there's grace if you're not. But praying for grace in that moment. You don't have to do it on your own. Let's close like this. Two groups, both of which, this is not manipulative, but it's going to sound like it. It's going to require courage for you to reply, to respond. One, if you know 
There's conviction, not, not condemnation. There's conviction. I've, I've, I've come up short. There was, I'm not talking about 20 years ago, unless that's something that you haven't dealt with. But there's, uh, there's a place where I'm giving in to fear, where I'm, I'm not living faithfully, obediently. I'm, I'm, I'm allowing fear to drive me. I want to give you an opportunity to repent. It's a sin. We want to give you an opportunity to repent and to receive the forgiveness and the restoration that Jesus longs to give you. You don't need to go walking around with your head hanging down. There's forgiveness. And so we want to, to pray that and pray that God would, you would sense the restoration of the Lord, him drawing you close. And we also want to pray that God would, would strengthen. That's kind of the second group. If, if you know, hey, the, these are the areas where I'm weak and I'm about to be walking into some of those areas. Maybe it's tied to being around your family. Maybe it's, I don't, I don't know. You have a doctor's appointment coming up. I, you, you're afraid you're going to get late. I don't know. Whatever it is, if you know you're about to walk into one of those areas where you can tend to wilt, we want to pray for God to strengthen you in that and that he would support you, undergird you. You're still going to have to make a choice, but you don't have to make it on your own. So let's pray. Bo, you can come back. Ministry teams, if you guys can take your spot. Y'all just pray with me if you're willing to do so. If it's helpful for you to, if it's helpful for you to think of yourself like this, put yourself in the tomb on Sunday, Easter Sunday morning with Mary and Mary and Salome. You know the tomb is empty. It's, it's obvious, like there is no body. But you haven't seen Jesus resurrected yet. So in that state, they're described as alarmed, as bewildered, as trembling. If that's where you are this morning, we want to pray for God, again, to strengthen you, to give you courage. God, I pray for any who are in that spot and that they would know your strong hand supporting, upholding. If you are like everybody we've seen the last three or four weeks, denying and deserting and giving in to running away, if, if that's you, and that's what you've been doing. You should acknowledge that before the Lord. God, I pray for those, for all of us who, places where we fall short, particularly for those who this is a, this is fresh. I pray that they would know your compassion, your forgiveness, and the fullness of your restoration. God, I pray for all of us that we would be rooted and established in your love for us and that we would live out of that reality. And that as we grasp the fullness of your love more and more completely, that fear would be pushed farther and farther away out of our hearts. We ask you to do that work. And even as you're doing that work, God, I pray that in the, in the moment of test, trial, temptation, that we would be courageous. Not because we're great, not because we're strong, 
because we're leaning fully and completely on you and you're great and you're strong. I pray, God, that you'd show us ourselves. You may want to pray this. I pray that you would show me myself. You'd show me the places where I'm prone to coming up short, where I'm prone to giving in to fear versus walking in faith. Would you help me there? I pray for all of us, God, as we're closing our time with Mark, I pray that the we would walk away more confident, more convinced that you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of God, more committed to following you as that, even when we're bewildered, even when we're trembling. I even wonder, were, were any of those disciples, were they angry? Not just in despair that you died, but angry. Feeling like maybe you conned them or just again in the mix of emotions. And that may be some of you today. You may be angry. Bait and switch. God, I pray that in the midst of all of those emotions that can be so confusing for us, I pray that we would remain faithful, that we would grow in our trust, that you would continue to pursue us, strengthen us, grow us, mature us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 